Facing the Future of International Arbitration, a CMS series exploring the evolving challenges and innovations in international arbitration. Welcome everyone to the second in our podcast looking at the future of international arbitration. Today I have with me Torsten Lerscher uh, from CMS in Germany and Kushal Gandhi from CMS in London. Uh, Torsten is a partner in our Cologne office specialising in international arbitration uh, and uh, well in international dispute resolution with a particular focus on international arbitration. Um, he's a very well-known practitioner in Germany uh, and also internationally and relevant for today, which I'll come on to later. He is also a former chair of the LCIA's Young International Arbitration Group, but I won't say how long ago that was. Uh, Kushal is a partner in our finance disputes team in London, specialising in finance and fintech dispute resolution, but also has an enormous uh, experience, amount of experience in international arbitration. So the focus of our discussion today is the updates to the LCIAA arbitration rules that came into effect on the 1st of October 2020. Now, in our last podcast, we discussed the updates to the ICC rules. I think it's fair to say that the LCIA updates are a little bit more extensive, um, and they include provisions relating to uh, multiple party and multi-contract arbitrations, emergency powers, tribunal powers, interim measures, and unsurprisingly, electronic communications and virtual hearings. Now, we'll discuss those in a moment, but there's another topic which the LCIA address in their updated rules under Article 14a, which deals with tribunal secretaries. Uh, Because that probably is a podcast in its own right, we're not going to cover it today, but just to make sure we pick up the main uh, points Under the new rules, uh, tribunal secretaries are permitted, but tribunals will need to get approval from all the parties first. Uh, That approval has to include uh, approval of the tasks that are going to be carried out. And the secretary has to give a confirmation of impartiality or independence and also how much they're going to charge. Um, You probably won't be surprised to hear that the rules also expressly provide that the tribunal is not permitted to delegate any decision-making function to the secretary. And the tribunal retains uh, full responsibility to ensure all tasks are performed to the standard required by the LCIA rules. So that's all we're going to say on tribunal secretaries. Um, So let's move on then to look at some of the other provisions. Um, As some of you will know, in 2017, in the not so memorably named case A versus B, the English court found that a request for arbitration under the LCIA rules was invalid if it rated if it related to more than one arbitration. So that's one amendment that's been picked up by these rules. But Torsten, could you tell us a bit more about the updates in relation to multi-contract and multi-party proceedings? Thank you, Guy. Um, this is indeed an interesting part of the new rules. Um, the starting point for multi-contract arbitration is that the new rules now allow you to commence multiple arbitrations under a composite request rather than to do one request per arbitration agreement. As you mentioned, Guy, this provision responds to a decision of the English court um, and the new rules clarify that each arbitration commenced via a composite request should proceed separately under the LCIA 
uh, unless, sorry, unless the LCIA court or the tribunal decides otherwise. The next issue then is consolidation of multiple arbitrations. Here, the tribunals and the um, LCIA court's powers to order consolidation have been updated. This now includes consolidation in two scenarios. First, all of the parties to the arbitration to be consolidated, so agree in writing. And second, the arbitrations are commenced under the same arbitration agreement or any compatible arbitration agreement. Um, and as a further requirement, um, they are either between the same disputing parties or arising out of the same transaction or the same series of transactions. Um, an additional requirement for both scenarios is that no arbitral tribunal has yet been formed or if already formed, such arbitral tribunal is composed of the same arbitrator. The final aspect in this context are concurrent proceedings. The updates to the rules also allow the tribunal with the approval of the LCIA court to order that multiple LCIA arbitrations shall be conducted concurrently. This requires that first, the same arbitral tribunal is constituted in respect of each arbitration. Second, that the arbitrations are commenced under the same arbitration agreement or compatible arbitration agreements. And third, that the arbitration is between the same disputing parties or arising out of the same transaction or a series of related transactions. Thanks, Torsten. Um, just on the requirements, you mentioned that one of the requirements uh, of um, either consolidation or concurrent arbitrations is that it has to be a compatible arbitration agreement. One presumes there that that means it's got to be another agreement under the LCI rules. But what I did want to ask you is, one of the other requirements is that uh, if there's not agreement, uh, sorry, if, if it's not between the same parties, that you can only have consolidation or concurrent arbitrations if the proceedings arise out of the same transaction or series of related transactions. Uh, those who tuned into our previous podcast would have heard us talk about this issue with the ICC rules. And there, uh, the language is slightly different. It's that the proceedings must arise in connection with the same legal relationship. So my question for you, Torsten, is which is wider? <laughs> it's a good one. Uh, and I'm uh, not sure that uh, the one is wider and the other is narrower. Um, because if you compare the term transaction with the term legal relationship, the latter certainly is broader. However, the term same legal relationship is arguably narrower than the term series of related transactions, as each transaction in principle can constitute a separate legal relationship. So I think the terms differ. I I'm not so sure that in practice they will lead to different results. Uh, no, that might be right. And, and we'll probably never have a direct side-by-side -side comparison on the same issues because we're talking about different uh, rules here. Um, I, I must admit, I think, I suspect the reason that the LCA may have chosen the language series of related transactions is because they may have had in their mind, for example, major projects where that might include actually quite a lot of different agreements um, and possibly even separate but connected finance agreements, which is why they may have gone for that term related transactions. But Kushal, do you have any comment on that? 
Thanks, Guy. Yeah, I, I think this could potentially be quite useful, particularly in the context of finance documents, where you have multiple contracts as part of one transaction. And I think in the past, parties have needed to put in fairly long and complex provisions in their contracts to give the tribunal power to consolidate proceedings under what's known in finance world as the transaction documents or the finance documents. And I think the widening of the consolidation powers in the new LCI rules could potentially eliminate the need for bespoke provisions. Um, but I, I, I think there will be a bit of a gap between what the LCI rules currently provide and what those sorts of market standard bespoke provisions have been sort of giving the tribunal power to do. So I think it's still something that parties need to consider carefully. Now, I agree with that. I don't think I would be suggesting parties drop the joinder and consolidation wording that they might be putting in if that's what they want. Uh, OK, thank you both. Let's move on to the next topic then of emergency and expedited procedures. Now, the LCI rules, like a number of the rules, already had provisions on either expedited uh, appointment of tribunal uh, or emergency arbitrators. Um, so emergency arbitrators in particular came in through the 2014 LCI rules. But Kushal, what's new? There are essentially three updates that I'd like to highlight um, in relation to expedited proceedings. The first one is in relation to the emergency arbitrator mechanism. Now, the emergency arbitrator now has the power to determine the amount of legal costs relating to the emergency proceedings and the proportions in which the parties are to bear those costs. Um, also, prior to the appointment of the tribunal, the emergency arbitrator has the ability to vary or discharge its order and also to make an additional award as to any claim for emergency relief presented in the, in the proceedings, but not decided uh, in any of all of the emergency arbitrators. Now, this could be quite practical and helpful um, because it might, it might give the emergency arbitrator a bit more flexibility and a bit more teeth to these emergency proceedings. The second update uh, is in relation to the tribunal's powers to conduct proceedings. Uh, this is under a new Article 14.6, this new power. And what it does is it includes express powers to expedite proceedings by, for example, containing the time period for written statements, um, limiting oral evidence, um, and dispensing even with the need for a hearing. Um, or the tribunal could decide that certain matters are suitable for a preliminary assessment. Now, again, this can be pretty handy where you think you've got a fairly rock-solid claim and, and any defence is probably going to be completely unmeritorious and, and you want to try and get a decision quicker than you would having, rather than having to go through the entire arbitration. Um, the final update that, that I want to quickly touch upon is in relation to early determination. The tribunal now has an express power to determine that any defence um, or any claim or any counterclaim is manifestly outside its jurisdiction or is inadmissible or manifestly without merit. And where appropriate, the tribunal can now issue an award to that effect. Now, again, I think this could be particularly helpful in situations where there's no genuine defence to, for example, a debt claim. Thanks, Kushal. Uh, yeah, I agree with that. And I think particularly in relation to debt claims, this could be useful. But um, I mean, just on that last point uh, on um, uh, sort of effectively what is almost a strikeout or, or an early dis disposal of, of a defence, 
although the LCI isn't the only institution who's admitted these types of um, dismissal procedures, um, it's quite a change, isn't it, from the traditional approach in international arbitration. Uh, and of course, we have this duty uh, uh, enshrined in the LCA rules in Section 33 of the Arbitration Act, which is that the tribunal has to give each party a reasonable opportunity of putting its case and dealing with that of its opponents. So how do you square this power that the tribunals have with that duty? Is it going to lead to more challenges of awards? It's interesting. Um, uh, you know, I think some of these powers have have existed uh, in some shape or form for, for a while now uh, in, the tri- in the institutional rules. But they're perhaps not being used as often as they should. And, and I think that this could be partly due to an anxiousness on the part of the tribunal, uh, but, but could also be because parties are not making requests that trigger these provisions. Because as you say, there is a concern that if you do get an award on this basis, it might be subject to challenge. Um, maybe not in England if it's, if it's seated in England, but more internationally in some jurisdictions. Uh, and, you know, I think this is something that will still be an element of anxiousness and anxiety on the part of parties more than tribunals, I would hope. Um, uh, and, and that's why I feel that actually, whilst not all cases will be suited to summary dismissal or early determination, I think parties should probably test the waters a bit more uh, with, with, with tribunals, because, you know, if you don't make this a part of your dispute resolution strategy, you could you could end up wasting an opportunity. Torsten? Well, my my expectation would be that these powers will uh, not so often be used in arbitral proceedings, um, and I think if a party makes such a request, um, which in itself may cause, or the dealing with such request may cause some delay. Um, I think it's essential that the tribunal observes due process uh, before rendering such a decision um, in order to uh, really be on the safe side uh, before, well, as you said, uh, throwing out such case. Uh, that's great. Thank you very much, Thorsten. Um We should move on to a few other topics before we wrap up our podcast. So uh, I know that, that each of you has interest in some other provisions. So Torsten, uh, do you want to pick one of yours? Well, thank you, Guy. There are indeed two interesting provisions that, from my perspective, are innovations um, and worth taking a look at. The first concerns the nationality of the parties. Here, Article 6.2 and 6.3 contain detailed rules on how to determine the nationality of natural and legal persons. And without going into too much detail, it's worth mentioning that in particular, legal persons may have multiple nationalities, namely if the jurisdiction of incorporation and the seat of effective management are different. Further, when determining the nationality of a legal person, the nationalities of controlling shareholders or interest are also to be considered. In particular, for LCIA arbitrations, this provision is helpful and important. The reason is that Article 6.1 of the rules provides that the sole or the presiding arbitrator shall not have the same nationality as a party unless the parties who are not of the same nationality as the arbitrator candidate all agree in writing otherwise. This is a strict provision 
different from other arbitration rules, it does not leave room for discretion of the institution. Therefore, these provisions are very helpful in light of Article 6.1 and going beyond the LCIA rules, I would expect that they will be looked at also by other institutions when it comes to the determination of the party of a party's nationality. Thanks, Dawson. And yeah, look, it's a good point. And it's actually important for parties to remember these quite strict provisions around uh, the nationality of arbitrators um, in LCI arbitrations. You said you had two points. Before we come on to your second point, Kushal, uh, what was the point you wanted to bring up? Thanks, Guy. Um, the, point, uh, the point I quickly want to touch upon is probably something that a lot of people have been dealing with uh, in, in, in the current sorts of pandemic situation, which is virtual hearings and electronic communications. I think an update to the LCI rules would have been incomplete uh, had there not been a bit more on this. Um, so thankfully, the LCI have sort of clarified um, that electronic communications are central to an LCI arbitration. Um, uh, and although the previous rules and practice did give a lot of prominence to electronic communications, the updates have introduced even more clarity. And in fact, there are certain situations like an application for expedited formation of the tribunal or for an emergency arbitrator that are now required to be made by electronic means. Um, and finally, on virtual hearings, again, I think anybody that's had a, a, an LCI hearing pre these rules may well have experienced the, the, the flexibility in the rules to have them virtually. I certainly hope they did. Um, but, but the rules have now been updated to sort of clarify that the tribunal does expressly have the power to, to have virtual hearings. So I'm sure that that is something that is probably going to get used more slow as, as time goes on. Thanks, Kushal. Um, well, Torsten, we come on to your second point. I didn't know if you wanted to comment on uh, electronic communications or virtual hearings, by all means do, or we can go straight into your second point. Well, just a very brief point. As you said, Kushal, I mean, we've all done virtual hearings and we know they work. There may be specific situations where it's not appropriate, but uh, my personal experience is that um, um, it's a very useful tool uh, to use um, virtual hearings and uh, online communication uh, uh, tools. Um, yes, and coming to the second point I find worth mentioning is Article 16.5 of the LCIA rules. And this may appear as a slightly technical aspect, but I find I, I think it's, it's really an interesting one. Article 16 in general deals with the seat of the arbitration, the place of the hearing and the applicable law. Article 16.4 provides that unless otherwise agreed, the law applicable to the arbitration agreement and the arbitration shall be the law applicable at the seat of the arbitration. This is widely understood to mean that the arbitration rules are interpreted on the basis of the laws at the seat of the arbitration. This Article 16.4 is, however, subject to Article 16.5, which provides that the LCIA rules shall be interpreted in accordance with the laws of England. The first observation is 
that this provision seems to be unique. At least I am not aware of a similar provision in any other set of international arbitration rules. The second point is that it may cause problems when it comes to the enforcement of an award, namely an, ar an arbitration that was seated outside England. Um, this may pro cause problems in an LCIA arbitration with a non-English tribunal seated outside England where the interpretation of the LCIA rules is in dispute. What happens if the tribunal overlooks Article 16.5 or fails in its attempt to interpret the rules applying English law? In addition, a further potential problem is that the parties may use Article 16.5 as a further procedural battleground, this time fighting over the correct application of English law when interpreting the LCIA arbitration rules. Uh, yeah, thanks, Torsten. Um, and it is an interesting point. And, uh, and actually, this approach can probably be distinguished from uh, the ICC. Um, because what we see is actually both institutions now include jurisdiction and governing law provisions in their rules. Um, but it's different, and I'll come on to that in a minute as to why it's different. Now, we understand from our inquiries that the reason they've done this is to address the rare occasions when the institution themselves might get sued, perhaps by one of the parties in an arbitration. But what's interesting when you compare the difference is that the ICC um, haven't adopted the same approach. So the way they've done it is to apply that the um, uh, interpretation of their rules when there are claims made against the ICC court shall be governed by French law and settled by the uh, Paris Judicial Tribunal. And that's in Article 43. So that's a difference in approach. They're really just applying it when they're being sued, unlike the approach that the um, LCIA have taken. But I suppose there's probably a bigger question, which is, how much of a problem do we think this is going to be in practice? Because you regularly sit as an arbitrator. Uh, we know that foreign issue, foreign law issues often come up in international arbitration that will go beyond, say, the Lex Fori and the Lex Arbitri. What do you think? Is it going to be a problem? Maybe not. Uh, and it's an aspect that will uh, clearly not uh, appear and pose a problem in every arbitration um, and maybe it's a purely academic uh, discussion. Um, however, taking into account that parties tend to take a more and more litigious approach to arbitral proceedings, Article 16.5 in my view at least has the potential to open up a further procedural battleground. The background to this is that Article 5.1.D of the New York Convention provides that the recognition and enforcement of an award may be refused if the arbitral tribunal, uh, sorry, if the arbitral procedure was not in accordance with the agreement of the parties. A party trying to resist enforcement of an award may be tempted to argue that the interpretation of the LCIA rules disregarded Article 16.5, that its interpretation of the rules was therefore not in accordance with the party's agreement, and that recognition and enforcement of an award must therefore be refused. I have no doubt uh, that the drafters of the new rules have thought this through and had good reasons 
to include this provision in the rules. It will nevertheless be interesting to see how this plays out in practice and how international tribunals seated outside England will deal with this provision. Thanks very much, Torsten. And um, Kushal, did you have anything you wanted to add to that before we finish? No, I think I think that's uh, that's that covers it all quite well. Okay, well, um, thank you both for your time today. Very much appreciated. I should comment that um, we've done very well because we discussed the prospect of this session taking eight hours based on the types of discussions we normally had. So uh, well done. Uh, thank you all for tuning in to uh, watch this podcast uh, whenever uh, uh, and wherever you are. Uh, for the next podcast, we're actually going to look at a topic that is actually stirring debate in both the world of international arbitration and in litigation circles. Um, as many of you will know, in late 2020, the uh, I'm sorry, an ICC Commission Task Force produced its report on the accuracy of fact witness memory in international arbitration. So we will be discussing the findings of that uh, report and its wider implications in our next podcast. The question will be, is the genie out of the bottle? Can we put it back in or is it going to completely change the way in which we handle witness evidence going forward? So please do uh, tune in for the next one when we release it. And until then, Torsten, Kushal, thank you very much and thanks everyone.